Welcome to the Clear Points Podcast, where we discuss optimizing customer experience by focusing on engagement points along the customer journey. Clear Points is a production of ClearPoint Health, a North Carolina consulting firm that helps healthcare providers and life sciences companies get to know their patients, customers, and key stakeholders and meet their needs more effectively. Clear Points airs on the ParkLife Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's Brian Castle here, host of the Clear Points Podcast from ClearPoint Health, everybody's favorite consumer, customer, and patient insights company. Uh, I'm joined today by founder Paul Mead, back for another appearance. Uh, And you might remember last uh, month's uh, debut episode, Paul led us through a couple discussions on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as some advances in virtual engagement and how we're studying um, (laughs) something that a lot of companies and their stakeholders have been reluctant to do, but the pandemic has forced that dynamic upon them. Um, And uh, I'm glad to have you back in the saddle with me, Paul, uh, to have another good conversation. Thank you. Well, Brian, um, we're going to talk about the digital space, I think, today. And and you and I have been talking about this for the last eight years, and I've been challenging you on some of the uh, principles around the whole digital space. So I guess a good way to start is to give us a short history of the digital space, kind of the web, the social media, how it's evolved over uh, time in the healthcare space. Yeah, this is a fun conversation to have, and I enjoy how our work, you know, like we were talking about the pandemic, forcing us to look at things on virtual engagement, the, you know, the digital space, really the dynamic digital space. If you think about more interactive websites, uh, websites with dynamic content, uh, like blogs and different kinds of forums. And then of course the rise of social media, it's, it's, Hard to believe sometimes when we think about things in our lives that are so ubiquitous, like websites and social media. Now, you and I are both gray-headed enough to know of a time when those things didn't exist. And so it's just been the last, you know, really 10, 12 years that we've seen a lot of those things rise. And then you know, a couple, three years later, really take hold. And that's talking about the general population. So you want to think about the way websites developed. That's really since the late aughts. Uh, And then, you know, just earlier in the past decade, social media really taking hold in the business world. And what we know about healthcare. um, is it lags just a little bit, uh, typically, in terms of adoption. And there's a good reason for that. There's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, Probably the biggest reason is compliance. Uh, Anytime people in healthcare want to do anything, um, whether you're a provider, whether you're uh, uh, a company in the life sciences, for example, 
you've got to figure out what you're allowed to do uh, almost before you even try to do anything. Um, and then secondly, people in this space are very busy. Um, there's not a lot of what a lot of industries would consider free time. Um, just looking at our key group that we've studied now for the better part of 17 years, if you can believe that, um, key opinion leaders in medicine, um, you know, these folks, not always, but typically they're teaching at medical schools, conducting a lot of research, doing a lot of publishing and treating patients. It's almost like they've got three or four normal jobs. So we've seen some rise in participation through the years in spite of that. Uh, but it, but it's an interesting space to look at, and you almost have to have that broader context of the evolution of the web itself, but also pay attention to how uh, healthcare with its compliance issues and then just the, the burden of the job, um, how they try to mitigate those things in order to participate and get messages out that they uh, want to. So how do you think social media has made life easier for them? Well, I think it's, uh, it's probably made it easier for them in much the same way as it has the rest of us. Um, if there's a key message or a set of messages that they want to get out, um, it's, it's, it's easy. And if you know how to use the tools, the tools are cheap. Uh, most of them are free. So it's not like, uh, uh, going out and buying time on the airwaves or even going to the trouble uh, of going through traditional print routes to get a message out. Uh, it's, it's as instantaneous as you can get there to hit the button. Great. Well, so, you know, together we've been developing a few different approaches to um, how we research, how we understand, and kind of how we deliver these insights in the digital space. Looking at your analog stakeholders, targeting specific communities of interest, and an all-in approach. Let's start with the analog route. Give us a lay of the land on some of the pros and cons of this approach. Yeah, so, you know, like we've said, we've been doing this work uh, for about eight years. And when people were coming to us and we were counseling them on taking a look at the space, there's a lot of weird stuff going on, and there's still some of that. There, there's a lot of... Uh, imposter thought leaders out there. Uh, there. There are people who are going online and, and they're actually, they don't practice medicine. They don't do medical research. Um, and they're basically raising their profile, talking about healthcare. They're almost like journalists with scientific degrees, but their main expertise is in how to use social media to get their message out and raise their profile. Those kinds of people, however well-intentioned they are, this is not a judgment day for them by any stretch, they're just not very useful. Um, what we're talking about is looking at, as we always have, even in the analog space, looking at how 
what an impact people make to push treatment forward, push research forward, push patient education and advocacy, push regulatory, all those big things that medicine needs somebody to pull that load. But we're, lo- we're looking at them. And so at first, this was probably because of all the clutter, all the noise, it was probably best to look at people that you had vetted as bona fide analog KOLs and then see what they're doing in the social and digital space. There's a limitation to this approach. Uh, while you are certain of getting people with all the right chops, <laughs> per se, um, th- there's, there's limited participation. And I'll give you some data from our research that I know you're familiar with. So we started looking at this on the low end, about a 3 to 5% participation rate of real what everybody agrees upon is KOLs uh, participating in social digital um, and a high end of 10%. So let me give you a little definition around that. So the three to 5% as in traditional areas of medicine, like cancer, like diabetes, uh, like lung disease, whereas the higher participation rates typically occurred and are occurring in some of those more, for lack of a better term, almost consumer medicine or more consumer-facing where people are often electing to do something versus uh, a debilitating condition mandating it. For example, like cosmetic surgery. Um, Those folks have had to be much more competitive, much more aggressive in their marketing in all aspects. And so we see a lot more participation. Uh, And that group over the years has gone from about 10% on that high end. Now they're at about 20%. Uh, Fairly recently, we looked at the worlds of cosmetic surgery. We also recently did a study in osteoarthritis That's such a pervasive condition. There's so many doctors out there treating it. So it was really interesting to see what those folks were doing, places like Twitter, YouTube. There were people doing a lot of good things to communicate not only to their patients, uh, but to their peers uh, to try to lift up the profession. So uh, you touched on an element of what you were talking about earlier about uh, the people that were trying to pretend they had a bigger footprint than they actually did. I I wrote a blog years ago. I called it having a size five foot and wearing a size 10 shoe. Um, (laughs) You don't look like you have a bigger footprint. But um, we've, we've recently seen an ugly side to social media, and I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's been attacked on the media recently, even to the point where some conspiracy theorists are declaring that, you know, he created this virus um, through his work in China and whatever. And, and so we're, we're seeing an ugly side where social media can actually aim to discredit somebody's expertise. Have you got any thoughts on that? Sure. And, and what I would say is also, in addition to 
what's happened with the character assassination of Dr. Fauci among a segment of the population. Um, what we're also seeing is that same segment um, promoting quackery in its place. Um, you know, as recently as yesterday, um, there were some videos that came out and um, the the person who was posing as the titular head of this group of doctors um, that was touting hydroxychloroquine once again. Um, the hydroxychloroquine thing with COVID is, is like a bad show that does reruns for some reason. Like, why the hell are they showing that on TV? Um, but this doctor, they have, they've done a little research on her. She's also... Uh, known for treating people that she thinks has demons. Um, so, and, and there's some even crazier stuff than that. Um, and while this stuff is easily debunkable with one Google search, like the whole pandemic thing, that, that first big effort to discredit Dr. Fauci, I had... Uh, people sending me those videos and going, what do you think of this? And then so I would, all I do is a quick search. And within one quick search, you can see, well, this person worked for Dr. Fauci briefly, left, went to a private laboratory, had some HR problems with those people. But people are trying to loop in this other stuff. And so it's a bit troubling. I do think that most legitimate physicians uh, and other healthcare providers know the difference and know it immediately. What I'm more troubled by is from a consumer standpoint, there's this tendency, and we all do it from time to time, myself included, we, we accept things we see as truth without vetting it. And so I think this is going to provoke an interesting conversation. And what I hope will happen is a rallying of the troops effect uh, and a rallying of the truth, uh, particularly in the case of these people. I mean, Dr. Fauci's reputation, you know, he's arguably the greatest physician in the history of both infectious and rare diseases. Um, and so, and he served six presidents and he just became a moron yesterday, uh, <laughs> <laughs> according to some folks. Yeah. So I guess my point is there's a good and a bad side to social media. And because of the instantaneous nature of this communication tool, it can put out good information quickly but it can also seed bad information quickly. So, so true. Um, you know, what we've been trying to do as we move into the social media insights that we're working on gathering is to try to weed out, you know, the good and the bad and to try to present the best foot forward. And, and I guess that takes some effort on your part, Brian, to make sure that every time you look at uh, social media insights, you're validating and vetting that kind of information. Clear Points is brought to you by Clearpoint Health on the Park Life Podcast Network. 
CPH is the global leader in developing original research methods and tools to help pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device companies optimize their relationships with critical advisors like disease state key opinion leaders. Learn more about our MSL assessments and medical affairs effectiveness tools by visiting www.clearpointhealth.com. So um, let's talk a little bit about these targeted communities of interest. Tell me how that's evolved. Yeah, so that's a rather recent area of focus. Uh, I'm in talks right now uh, with a prospective client that this is this approach is very applicable to. So what they're doing, and this is a, it's a new product innovation, so I obviously can't talk about it by name, but it's in the device space. And so they're trying to understand, they've got some, what you would call, and this is not at all negative, because uh, this can have some negative connotations, but they, they need to figure out who the influencers are in the space. And that's the, the definition of influencer in this context is very benign. It's people who are carrying and holding the conversation about the disease areas affected by these products. And so this gets away, even though there are KOLs in, in virtually every specialty, general family medicine, allied health professions, PAs, NPs, nurses. This gets away from people that are even considered KOLs for the most part. So there's a much wider conversation being had. And and they've got a pretty great reason, I think, for doing this. I think any company is hitting the right notes when they try to learn as much as they can about what their customers need, how they talk about the products, how they use the products, but just all that mental context that you can get through different types of voice of customer research. And so this is a different type of voice of customer research where they've got a new product coming into an existing product class. So it's a follow-on product that they think is better, but they want to know how people in this space conceive of these products and share with each other about them so that they can relate better, so that they can communicate better and ultimately get their message across so that their products are up for consideration when purchasing time comes in this space. I think it's a really, really cool targeted application of this stuff. All right. Well, let's um, bring in the third uh, pillar that you talked about. So we talked about the uh, analog stakeholders, and now we've just finished up the targeted communities of interest. But you've talked also about this all-stakeholder approach. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I think I think the what I call the all stakeholder or the all in approach is something that's more applicable when you're a company with 
let's just say a portfolio of multiple products in a fairly mature space, well, that's going to yield a lot of marketplace complexities. So, you know, we've done a lot of work in different types of cancer. We've done a lot of work in different types of neurological disorders, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Uh, We've done a lot of stuff in GI. um, And we've done a lot of stuff in cardiovascular, uh, things like AFib, diabetes, obesity, and the like. So those are all super mature treatment areas with a lot of stakeholders. And I think it does a company well to know who's driving those conversations and how and how they're perceived, how their products are perceived uh, in contrast to other people's products. And so you might say, well, how do you do that? So what you can do is use some segmentation tools that will make these vast wide groups of stakeholders, whether, whether it's physicians, provider institutions, payers, health plans, PBMs, uh, patients, patient advocacy groups. Most of these things start with a P. Um, but when you're, when you're able to segment and then look at who the top people are or, or entities driving the conversation, and you look at the impact those people have, like how many followers at what countries, um, you can do some re- sub research into uh, to characterize their followings. Is it mostly consumers and patients? Do they have a lot of other uh, medical and healthcare people following them? And so you can look at it's analogous to looking at a journal's impact factor uh, in the traditional scientific community. So you can look and see where those gaps may be and how you're performing as far as how you're perceived in those different corners of the community. This also goes back to not only can you segment by stakeholder groups, there's also a role for artificial intelligence here. Uh, A great example is you can take positioning statements. Like if you're a company with a cancer therapy and you've got two or three competing therapies, you can input positioning statements for each of those drugs. And you're a marketing warrior yourself from the Zantac days and other products. So you know all about product positioning. Can you imagine if back in the nineties you had a tool where you could measure instantaneously who is mirroring your positioning and who's not so that you could go in with education and scientific exchange to see where your products needed to improve or their perception needed to improve. These are amazing tools we have now. Okay. Well, that's great, Brian. And um, I got one final question for you. I'm a brand new product manager, just starting my job in a company. What are the three insights that you can provide to me around the whole digital space? Number one, you got to cover your bases. This is no longer an area 
uh, that you can ignore. Um, for a long time, as we said before, it lagged behind, but it, it's it's arriving. It's coming through the door, and you're ignoring it at your peril. Number two, you got to have, with any research we do, we tell people this because it's the truth. You're not going to get great insights without good, solid, trustworthy data. So that's so important. Number three, in order to do the, cover those bases right, get that really solid data to produce great insights in this space because of the easy proliferation of conversation in all these venues, whether it's Twitter, Reddit, WebMD, you name it. You got to have good tools that cut through the clutter so that you can see what you need and understand it. Thank you for joining us. Subscribe to Clear Points on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify so you won't miss our next episode coming soon. Clear Points is a production of Clearpoint Health and the Park Life Podcast Network.